a ghostly apparition visits you in the middle of the night, tells you she is a murder victim, and who killed her. You bring that information to the local prosecutor, and you know what? An investigation is reopened, a man charged, and a hanging set to be carried out. Yet, one has to question, was an innocent man sent to the gallows for nothing more than a dream? My name is M. William Phelps. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author. I've dedicated the past 20 years of my life to helping families of the missing and murdered. Join me. We're crossing the line. It's February 12th, 1673. A cold night, rather dark and gloomy, and the ground outside Rebecca Cornell's home is hard as rock. The permafrost, a foot deep at least. 73-year-old Cornell had been buried just days before. Rebecca Cornell's brother, 64-year-old John Briggs, is having trouble sleeping on that frigid night in February. Tossing and turning, Briggs just cannot get comfortable. There's no doubt the thought of his sister's death weighed heavily on Briggs's mournful heart and mind. But something else, Briggs later explains, happens in the room where he lay alone just four days after Rebecca's tragic death. Somewhere between, quote, sleeping and waking, Briggs says, he thought he felt, quote, something heave up his bedclothes twice, end quote. It's such a profound sensation that it startles him. There is someone, Briggs is certain, there in the room with him. So, Phelps, just to be clear, you know the Halloween has already passed, right? That is the voice of reason, speaking her reason, my producer <laughs> on Crossing the Line, Catherine Law. And in fact, I do. And in fact, I did a deep dive on the research for this one, Catherine. Okay. So it's a different kind of episode for Crossing the Line, and I'll get to that in a minute. But this story is part of a collection of historical murders I wrote over a decade ago called Murder New England. Now, if you're listening to Crossing the Line for the first time, we generally focus on contemporary murder and missing person cases. But sometimes there's something we can learn by going back in time and looking at historical murders. For regular listeners, no, I haven't turned Crossing the Line into a paranormal historical true crime show. This is the true story of a murder you will find so incredibly hard to believe that it just might be true. I mean, I'm always here for a ghost story, Phelps. I, I'm not a big ghost guy, you know, I'm a skeptic, but I just find it fascinating, the events that take place after this ghost appears. Mm -hmm. So let's get into that. John Briggs is entirely awake by this point, you know, after being rustled up by something in the room. Sitting up, looking around the room, just a sliver of bright light from the winter moon protrudes sharply through the window, cutting the blackness in the room. So Briggs can sense a presence in the air, he says. He never explains whether he believes in the supernatural 
or if he considers ghosts mere hogwash. But he describes this event in an open courtroom as though it is fact. And not a soul in that room questions the authenticity of his account. Remember, it is 1673, after all, and belief in ghosts and spirits is a normal way of life. Right. For context, this was about 20 years before the Salem witch trial. So basically everybody believes in the paranormal at this point. I totally agree. And, you know, we have to consider there is a totally different way of thinking back then. Very much open-minded about this stuff. It's mm-hmm. it's normal life for a person in the 17th century totally. to believe in ghosts. So Briggs says on that night, he rubbed his eyes as a light, quote, like the dawning of ye day, end quote, suddenly illuminates the entire room. It is here that Briggs can now see his way around the room as if it is the middle of the day. And as he looks, there she is, standing bedside, looking down at him. A woman, Briggs reports, her appearance, quote, much affrightens him. Quote, in the name of God, what art thou? Briggs asks the woman. She's staring at Briggs and she cries out. He tells the court, quote, I am your sister, Cornell. See how I was burnt with fire. Briggs looks closely at what he later refers to as the apparition. The woman is very much burnt, he testifies, about the shoulders, face, and head. Again, quote, I am your sister, Cornell, she says a second time. See how I was burnt with fire. And then, without warning, she is gone. So for John Briggs, this visit by his sister is not only a sign of some sort, but also evidence. Rebecca Cornell had not died in an accidental fire as it appeared at the time of her death just days before. John Briggs is now utterly certain Rebecca has been murdered and he aims to do something about it. What's even more bizarre than John Briggs's middle of the night vision is what happens after Briggs goes to the general attorney, John Easton, with this story of his supernatural vision. Briggs's statement actually reopens the investigation into the death of his sister. You know, of course, it's a long time ago, but to these people, the way they operated in their lives, seeing an apparition, an angel, a ghost, that would be as immediate and real as anything we talk about on this show. I have to agree with you. You know, we're we're thinking about this with a contemporary mind. Mm-hmm. But if we were to think about it with a 17th century mind, it would all be real. Totally. And again, I mean, this is the impetus for this case for me. You know, it's a way for me to look into this case. It's what happened. It's court testimony. Right. The tenor of the moment is to believe that an apparition could bring with it not just a message, but the truth. What's different about this case is that regardless of that vision, this reinvestigation produces some rather interesting developments in the case and leads to a contemporary question, or I should say condition, many may find even harder to believe than ghosts as murder witnesses. But so Phelps, tell me about Rebecca. Rebecca Cornell was a wealthy Aquanac Island society widow who mixed it up on occasion with some of Portsmouth's and Newport's richest and most influential elites. 
To understand what happens on the night Rebecca dies, we need to understand who she is, the days leading up to her death, and how that night unfolds. Rebecca owns 100 acres of land just over the Newport town line in Portsmouth on the western side of Aquanec Island. The Cornell homestead is located on the water, a magnificent piece of property with breathtaking sunset and beach views. She lives in a two-story home, quite nice by 17th century New England standards, very specific to the type of early Rhode Island architecture we might call colonial. Many of these clapboarded homes have spacious rooms families gather in and entertain one another, read the Bible, they sew, or they just sit and talk. The home is big enough to house Rebecca, her son Thomas, her grandson Edward, Thomas's wife Sarah, and a few stray boarders, one of whom is a man named Henry Strait. I got ye old eye on Henry. <laughs> so you're going for the scruffy boarder. Uh, we've seen it before. We have seen it before on Crossing the Line. So, you know, you're just you're taking a dart and you're going for the bullseye. I, <laughs> I'm with you there. Or, you know what? I don't know. Maybe this is a Taylor Swift lyric. Uh, I had a dream that my daughter-in-law killed me for the money, but she didn't know we'd left her out of the will. There are young grandchildren around, too, Thomas and Sarah's two daughters. A big family by any standard, Rebecca doesn't seem to mind allowing them to stay in the home as long as everyone pitches in and does their share of the chores. Help with household finances, food, linen for clothing, and medicines. One of the main meeting places inside the home is the immense and centrally located fireplace with its red brick and garden stone chimney jutting upward through the center of the roof. Being centered in the house, it heats most of the home. As Elaine Crane writes in her book about the Cornell case, Killed Strangely, quote, it is certain that the most dramatic feature of Rebecca's first floor chamber would have been the large walk-in fireplace. You know, think big, like a pantry. This fireplace warms the entire downstairs, although it's a good bet that every room in the house, as with most homes at the time, is fortified with its own fireplace, however big or small. Yeah, I watched this show called Cheap Old Houses, and it's fantastic. They, like, only visit old, old houses that are beautiful and have these crazy features. They're all under $150,000. A lot of them are in New England. And when they say walk-in fireplace, they mean it. The whole heart of the home was this fireplace. And it was like the length of a car. They were huge. Yeah, it's like a walk-in pantry. You walk in yeah. it and you light it up and it heats basically all of downstairs and a lot of upstairs. Yep. And just like a giant fire in the middle of your house. <laughs> Rebecca sleeps on the first floor. And on the afternoon of her death, February 8, 1673, she isn't feeling well. Lately, Rebecca is spending most of her time in her room feeling sickly and weak. The conditions inside this house are not what Rebecca envisioned when she allowed Thomas and his large family to move in. <laughs> That's for damn sure. There's a lot of tension between Thomas and Rebecca. They are definitely at odds. Rebecca, though, has reasons to be upset with her son. Leading up to that night, she's been telling neighbors that Thomas and Sarah have been abusing her. 
One story Rebecca shares, and this is horrible. I mean, I can envision this whole thing and it's it would be a TikTok today, but it's horrible. One story Rebecca shares is that when she went out to collect firewood, she slipped on the snow and fell on the ice. Keep in mind, she's in her 70s, on her back, struggling to move, to get up. She could see Thomas and Sarah staring at her from a window, but neither stepped out of the house to help her. Another problem Rebecca has with Thomas stems from one of the main motivating factors in murder, whether it's biblical times, the 17th century, or today. Cashola, money. Thomas owes his mother a lot of money, yet he refuses to pay her, even the rent for staying in the home with his family. So Thomas and Sarah are kind of freeloading. Uh, I would say more than kind of. I'd say they are freeloaders, yes. <laughs> and Thomas won't lift a hand to tend to the pigs or help Rebecca in the garden during spring or summer, nor will he even allow Sarah to help his mother with the cleaning of the house or the everyday chores. Basically, they're doing nothing. Failure to launch, Phelps. That's what we call that these days. Failure to launch. Failure to launch. That's that's new for me. Is that like stargazing yeah. and chicken winging and um, <laughs> and soaking? You've been reading too much about BYU students, haven't you? Uh, I mean, no. It's just like when you got a kid who's like 30, 35, who like ah, never left home, that's... not moved back home. We understand that has to happen sometimes. Like there's been a pandemic, et cetera. But yeah, it's, uh, those people who are like 42 and mom's still doing their laundry. I get it now. Failure to launch. <laughs> yep. Rebecca is also complaining to the neighbors of having to sleep some nights without blankets because Thomas has taken them for himself and his family. She even says Thomas and Sarah won't allow her to eat with the family. You know. They- Listen, this is starting to sound more and more like my mother-in-law. Did you talk to Karen? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> you never call. You never write. Ye never call. Ye, ye never, never write. <laughs> because of the way she's being treated, Rebecca often talks of killing herself to neighbors and friends. She cannot take it anymore. Yet every time that evil thought creeps up on her, she explains she denies it because she's a God-fearing woman. She tells the neighbors that when these types of thoughts come on, one has to resist ye devil, resist ye devil, this too shall pass. That is an excellent 17th century impression, by the way. Oh, I thank you. I give you props for that. <laughs> there comes a time that winter when Rebecca has had enough, you think? She gets hold of her other son who lives nearby and tells him she wants to move in with him and his family. She's done with Thomas and Sarah and has decided to leave. And she adds, Thomas is now out of the will. He and Sarah will get nothing from her. They do not deserve it. Then, just days before her death, foretelling what is to be her future, she tells her other son she needs to move immediately. If I am not otherwise disposed of or made away, she says. Let's take a quick break here and come right back. Promise. You won't believe how ye old facts in this case unfold. Welcome back. 
to this different episode of Crossing the Line. And remember, although our case today is over 350 years old, it's based on courtroom testimony. So Thomas Cornell, who obviously despises his mother and wants all her wealth for himself and his wife, Sarah, walks into the Cornell house on February 8, 1673. He's told Rebecca is not feeling well. The sun is just set. It's near dinner time. After Thomas gets himself settled, he enters Rebecca's room. He sees his mother is lying in bed. Thomas's son, Edward, is there by her side, keeping his grandmother company. I came into the room and sat down, Thomas later testifies. We discoursed for ye space of one hour and a half. <laughs> I'm going to use that from now on, Phelps. Brad and I discoursed for like two hours last night. <laughs> <laughs> Discoursing is ye lots of fun indeed, I would say myself. <laughs> Thomas claims after he finished speaking with his mother, he stepped into the room next door, his and Sarah's bedroom, for reasons he does not ye discourse during his testimony. <laughs> Thomas spends about 45 minutes alone in his room, according to later testimony by Sarah, winding, quote, a quill of yarn. Hmm. Rebecca hasn't been eating much the last few weeks. She's been skipping dinners and taking to her room to lie in bed. Huh. Do you think she's being poisoned or is she just kind of like old and grumpy and like... I often wondered the same thing while I was researching this case for that book. She does get progressively sicker as the days after the fighting with Thomas begins, so who knows? Hmm. I mean, that was a common way to kill someone too, poison. Mm -hmm. Rebecca requests a bowl of warm milk that night. There is some indication that maybe Rebecca didn't have all ye teeth and that milk and soft foods gotcha. were the only nutrition she could get down without complication. Near 7 p.m., Sarah fetches Edward, the young boy, and tells him to go into Rebecca's room and find out if she wants her milk. The rest of the family is preparing to sit down at the dinner table and eat. Edward does what he is told. Not long after entering his grandmother's room, Edward runs out, exasperated, excited, and shouting something he has seen that frightens him. No, not a ghost this time. There was, quote, some fire in the room upon the floor, Thomas later recalls during that inquest. And the child came unto us to fetch the candle to see what fire it was. Listen, whenever I need to check out a fire, I bring a candle with me. I mean, why not fight fire with fire? That is a <laughs> ye thing to do in the 17th century. Right? Absolutely. Rebecca's boarder, Henry Strait, remember Catherine's suspect, mm -hmm. has just come in from being gone all day, along with another boarder, James Moyles, which rhymes with boils, <laughs> and both run into Rebecca's room to see what all the commotion is about. Thomas, Sarah, and the others follow. I mean, boils, ye old boils, another thing that killed a lot of people in the 1600s. <laughs> In an awkward mishmash of words, Thomas later talks about what happens next. Quote, Henry Strait, coming in, saw some fire and stopped, and with his hands, raked fire upon the floor, supposing it to be an Indian that was drunk and burnt. So he laid hold of the arm, myself immediately following, and by the light perceived, it was my mother. Henry Strait's account backs up Thomas's. Rebecca Cornell is now a corpse, burned to a crisp in front of them. 
so badly, she is unrecognizable. James Moyles later talks about what he saw upon entering the room, shedding a bit of light on how badly Rebecca had been injured, but also begging the question, how could this woman, a human body, mind you, have been burned in this manner while her family began to eat dinner in an adjacent room? How could a fire rage wildly enough to burn a human body, which takes sustained temperatures of about 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, and not ignite the remainder of that same dry wooden house? Not to mention that the curtains and valances and foot of Rebecca's bed are also burned up, and yet Moyles explains at the inquest, quote, ye fire about ye bedstead was out, as Rebecca Cornell, quote, was lying on ye floor with fire about her from her lower parts near to ye armpits. I'm so pleased. Contemporarily speaking, Rebecca was lying on the floor with fire about her from her private area (laughs) to her armpits. From her ass to her titties. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Sorry. I just apologize. Moyle's only recognizes the burned-up human being as Rebecca by her shoes. Imagine that. You're identified by your shoes. Awful. During those days in New England when something like this occurs, an inquest or an investigation by judicial authorities to ascertain the facts behind a death is held immediately after the incident at the place of the incident, generally speaking. So as heavy snow comes down that Sunday morning, February 9, 1673, the coroner, William Balston, who is incidentally a very good friend to Rebecca's deceased husband, he impanels a 12-man inquest board made up of local judges and squires. Some of these men were summoned to Rebecca's house the previous night as word spread throughout the community that she had died mysteriously and suddenly in a fire. So they are actually considered witnesses as well. They're there to make a swift judgment regarding Rebecca's death. They talk it through, listen to witnesses, discuss any evidence, and then determine whether anyone will be charged with the crime or the death is simply an accident or suicide. I mean, you also have to imagine back in these times, you basically just have like a dozen men tromping through what we would now consider a crime scene. Yeah, I mean, crime scene, there was no such thing as a crime scene. Right, right. It was a death. And what kind of death Mm -hmm. was it? Yep. With the evidence left behind, it would be derelict to assume quickly without further investigation that Rebecca has died in an accidental fire. Some of Rebecca's clothing has been burned while some of her clothing is still intact and not even touched by fire. She was found on the floor on her left side. And as we mentioned earlier, the fire seems to have been contained to her body alone with very little of the room burned. With all of that, one would expect at least a few hard questions would be asked as these men stand around and study the scene. You know, from the timeline, it seems like she was fine one minute, given some warm milk, and the next she's on fire. And the other part of me is like, that would happen. Women wore heavy, big skirts and fire, open fire was the main way to heat your home back in those days. So you can imagine like women would kind of catch fire all the time. But what's weird is that she's partially burned, that the rest of the house is not burned. Like she's burned enough to die. 
supposedly, but nothing else has caught fire, not even the rest of her clothes. Very strange. And the whole family's, you know, 20 feet away in the next room. Yeah. It's not like you have gallons of gasoline or diesel fuel lying around then. At best, you might have whale oil, certain resins, something called hot pitch, which is a tar-like substance derived from plants. Although highly combustible, it takes time to base the human being in animal fat and then light her on fire. Right. You definitely just said based. I did. I went there. I know. I went there. You went there. So is everyone lying about what happened? I don't know about that. Uh, It's okay. It's also like you don't just like catch on fire and you die. If part of your body is burned, you're not automatically dead. That's what's weird here. And you're screaming. Uh, Yeah. Good point. Fire, fire. I'm on fire. Uh Uh-huh. The coroner, William Balston, after reviewing all the evidence and taking the testimony into account, does not feel Rebecca's death is anything more than an absolute and dreadful accident. Quote, clothes very much burnt by fire, Balston observes in his report, and her body very much scorched and burnt by fire. Uh, Yes, thank you, Mr. Obvious, Mr. Balston. Balston records that after a diligent inquiry in which he interviews all of the witnesses inside the home that night and studies the body after stripping off the clothing— Rebecca Cornell has been brought to her untimely death by an unhappy accident of fire as she sat in her room. The other thing to keep in mind is that crime scene investigation then is basically a bunch of dudes sitting around drinking ale, deciding what to blame on a woman. (laughs) And if they cannot draw a consensus, they instead say it's an accident. You know what? At least somebody sees what we were going through back then. Thank you, Phelps. (laughs) Rebecca's body is prepared for burial after the inquest committee leaves. The custom of the day mandates that women perform a short ritual and clean up the body before burial. Absent from this posse of quasi-undertakers is Sarah, Rebecca's daughter-in-law. Sarah is pregnant, and it is thought that, quote, a dead body could spirit away the fetus or that contact could result in some deformity or birthmark, end quote. And that's from Elaine Crane's excellent book, Killed Strangely. Convenient for Sarah that she didn't have to prepare the body. (laughs) Very convenient. Rebecca Cornell is buried next to her husband in the family plot, which is along the shoreline of nearby Narragansett Bay. It's within the next few days that Rebecca's brother, John Briggs, has that apparition Remember, as he explains to legal counsel, Rebecca's spirit has come to him talking about how she has been burned up by someone without accusing any one particular person. Okay? So we're back at the beginning, basically. This vision sparks a second inquest without question. The coroner requests Rebecca's body be exhumed immediately. Upon performing an autopsy, the coroner now claims that Rebecca has been stabbed an injury to her stomach, apparently, and then burned to death. There is also a bit of blood said to be found leaking from Rebecca's nose. How they missed this on the night they first investigated is beyond my comprehension. Maybe no electric light? Well, they have ye candles, and they have ye big (laughs) candles, and they have ye plenty of them. (laughs) Murder investigation by candlelight. But I, I mean, look, that would be a reason why she didn't scream. 
because somebody stabbed her to death right. first. So she didn't feel the fire. Right. Right. Yep. Good point. There is some question whether the stab wound is just a puncture that happened when Rebecca fell off the side of her bed, though. Regardless, all of it is enough to set the coroner back to the drawing board to rethink this mysterious accidental death. Like, Phelps, did she fall off her bed onto a knife? Well, <laughs> well, she could have. I mean, I get that that's their suggestion, but man, you got to be reaching. Well, yeah. I mean, it's it's 1673. I mean, they. they I, I don't even know that they know any other way to murder somebody besides, you know, strangling. Poisoning, stabbing, throwing the yeah, fire. That's it. You know, um, well, I guess there's only a couple other ways to kill someone anyway. So, but. <laughs> Throw them in a pit of despair. <laughs> The theory of an accidental fire seemed plausible to everyone before Briggs's ghost story emerged. You see, Rebecca, like a lot of women of her day, smoked a pipe, often before bedtime. It is certainly possible that an ember from that pipe ignited her clothing or the bed, part of which was burned. Nonetheless, no one asks about a pipe being recovered at the scene or the notion that for Rebecca to have been burned to death in that manner— there would have to have been an inferno confined specifically to one room in the house with the intensity to actually ignite the fat cells of her body, which is something I'll unpack right after one more short break. And it's a pretty incredible theory, I might say. Not mine, I need to be very clear about, but it is an incredible theory. What if the fire started from inside Rebecca's body? We'll be right back. Thomas Cornell gets a bit agitated when he hears of the subsequent exhumation and reinvestigation. Well, why wouldn't he, right? <laughs> he heads into town and makes the accusation that it had to be Rebecca's pipe that started the fire. He has no explanation for the wound in her stomach thought to be a stab wound. Ah, maybe she fell on the pipe off the bed and the pipe went through her. Could have been. This is a very sharp pipe. Thomas, though, has good reason to be worried because back in the day, these inquest boards, they did not fucking play, all right? Once you are accused and charged, you are as good as convicted. And once you are convicted of a murder, well, lo and behold, ye should know something, what ye sentence will be. Ye old hanging by the neck until ye are dead, am I right? Aye, aye. To the gallows. Thomas has some explaining to do, I think. He is treading water at this point. The one theory that they do not consider, which they could have never known then, has been brought up by scholars and others looking at this case throughout the years in recent times. Again, I need to be clear on this, all right? No emails, no social media messages. <laughs> Don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> this is not my observation, okay? The theory is spontaneous human combustion. Finally, Phelps. Finally. <laughs> I said it. <laughs> it sounds absolutely insane that the body can ignite from within without any source other than the chemicals inside it. But there is research and a paper published by the National Library of Medicine on pubmed.gov 
that explains it this way. Catherine, take it away. The term spontaneous human combustion refers to a situation when a human body is found with significant portions of the middle parts of the body reduced to ashes, much less damage to the head and extremities, and minimal damage to the direct surroundings of the body. Typically, no observable source of ignition is found in the vicinity of the victim, and a bad-smelling, oily substance is noted. In the past, such a situation was erroneously attributed to supernatural powers, as such phenomena incurs in the absence of any witness. Phelps, I knew the X-Files were real. I knew it. I wanted to believe. That's my best impression of the sound. There we go. There we go. It's a lot to believe. It asks us to step away from common beliefs and think differently. I agree 100% it seems implausible, but the body is an array of chemicals and water and other liquids. The idea has been around for centuries, actually. I buy it. That article, Spontaneous Human Combustion in the Light of the 21st Century by Verve Kalajonen and Nicholas Kluger, goes on to say a specific inclusion criterion resulted in 12 patients being studied. Quote, A unique sequence of events takes place for the human body to incinerate to ashes. The victim has to die for the body fat to start melting. A tear in the skin has to occur for the melted fat to impregnate the charred clothes, igniting a wick effect that produces localized heat for extended periods of time. A phenomenon called spontaneous human combustion is reality. The term spontaneous human combustion has nuances which are not applicable to this situation or to these modern times. Therefore, we suggest a new term, fat wick burns, end quote. Fat wick burns. That's incredible. I mean, our human bodies are basically enormous candles. I buy it. But the main point in that latter quote from me is that spontaneous combustion can only occur if there's a fire source outside the body that lights the body, the fat wick, and then it burns from within. Perhaps the stab wound was the entryway source here. That would answer how she burned up so quickly. Right, and in a lot of these supposed cases, somebody will have like a completely unburned face with a cigarette hanging out of their mouth that's like burned all the way down to the ash. Right. It's interesting because you do have these circumstances of this happening And they are so exceedingly rare. But these confluence of several different factors would explain why they're so rare. And this is one of the things that really interests me, especially when I go to like forensic science conferences and look at Mm -hmm. new technology and talk to crime scene people, crime scene specialists and investigators. You know, they're there looking for that, right? That's their job really is to find that needle in a haystack way that someone might have died. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that person was murdered. It just means, wow, we've never seen this before. Right, right. And it also presupposes that she was dead before she caught fire, which in this case would indicate murder. If she's dead before the fire, that's indicative of murder. Yep. That and a gaping stab wound. Or a gaping pipe wound. (laughs) Right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yes, right. Very sharp pipe. So as the coroner requestions friends and neighbors, what they learn is that there was a great animosity between a mother and her son. That's what emerges from ye discourse of those interviews 
And it is now the belief of the inquest committee that Thomas Cornell murdered his mother. Yikes. And once an inquest makes a call, um, good luck. Unless you see a ghost. And then you can, you, you, you can get another inquest. Yep. Thomas is arrested and put on trial. Basically a sit down for a half a day where everyone points a finger at him and says he did it. The showstopper during this proceeding is John Briggs' story of his apparition. This blows everyone away. I can just hear everyone shouting in the court. Hey, the, uh-huh. hey, guilty, ye guilty, ye gallows, ye hang. Yes. This is the strongest evidence against Thomas Cornell, the ghost. Another witness, a friend of the family testifies, quote, Thomas Cornell said that his mother in her lifetime had a desire to have a good fire. And he thought God had answered her ends. For now, she had it. Wow. A good fire. What the fuck is a good fire? I would call that gaslighting, but... Gaslighting a good fire. Mm-hmm. Wow. They haven't invented that term yet. That's deep. They haven't even invented gas yet, let's be honest. One of Thomas's witnesses claims that Rebecca had actually talked about killing herself by drowning or stabbing herself. Who the fuck? A 73-year-old woman is going to stab herself to death? Right. Uh, but then also, if she had done it herself... There would have been a knife there. Right. Right? Right. Absolutely. If this was suicide. Patience Cogsall, a friend of Rebecca's, says this. Rebecca was afraid there would be mischief done. Her daughter-in-law, Sarah, was of such a desperate spirit. For not long since, said she, she ran after one of the children of Thomas's first wife with an axe into her house, but she prevented her striking the child. Yikes! I got to give you props for reading that. Uh, without Thank you. interruption, because that that is ye hard to read, that stuff. <laughs> Thank you, Phelps. Thomas is found guilty and sentenced to death by hanging, which will take place in 11 days. Under the more severe laws of the day, Thomas Cornell is bound and kept manacled by chains in a small, four-by-eight, dirty, and disease-infested jail cell. He died, historian Edward Field writes in his 1902 study of Rhode Island plantations making no confession. Hmm. Before he is hanged, Thomas Cornell petitions to be buried next to his mother as an indication, many presume, of his innocence. He is denied that request and instead buried on the same property, nowhere near Rebecca. Instead, he is buried, quote, within 20 feet of the common road and that the colony be at liberty to set a monument on his grave. The internment otherwise to be under or near the gallows. So in other words, it's sort of a sign of disrespect, of yeah, shame. Yes, that was very common. I've written many stories about the 17th and 16th century, and a lot of times murderers would be buried under railroad tracks, mm. under a, an area where buggies went by, just to be rattled w- while they are in their final sleep. I, I want to say something, Catherine. Some of these historical murder cases are interesting because there is a detachment, we feel, I think, since mm-hmm. so much time has passed. I've written four historical true crime books. The murders did not have the same impact on me that contemporary murders do. And I find that a bit unsettling, really, because murder is murder, whether today, yesterday, or 500 years ago. You know, obviously, this was a very real thing to those people at this time. The mother is dead. You know, she's a part of the community. But you know what they also say? 
tragedy plus time is comedy. Yeah, I mean, that's true. It's been true for me. Many believe Thomas Cornell was unjustly tried and executed. An interesting genealogical aside to this strange but supposedly true New England murder story is that Thomas Cornell's daughter, who was born several months after Thomas's execution, was the great-great-grandmother of infamous accused axe murderer Lizzie Borden, who, we should say, was acquitted of murder. The name Sarah Cornell gave to her and Thomas's child? Innocent Cornell. Well, with that said, I'll be back here next week with Ye Contemporary Murder Case. As always, be safe, be aware, and be very careful of spontaneously combusting and falling on sharp pipes. Just saying. Sources for today's episode come from Spontaneous Human Combustion in the Light of the 21st Century, National Library of Medicine, PubMed.org, by Verve Kolyonen and Nicholas Kluger, Killed Strangely, book written by Elaine Crane, Murder New England, book written by your host, M. William Phelps, The 1673 Murder of Rebecca Cornell and the Good Fire, New England Historical Society. Crossing the Line is a production of iHeartRadio. It's executive produced by me, M. William Phelps, and iHeart executive producer, Catherine Law. Special thanks to producer Rose Bacci and EP Christina Everett. Audio engineering, original music, and sound design by Matt Russell. Additional thanks to Will Pearson at iHeartRadio. The series theme, number 444, is written and performed by Thomas Phelps and Tom Mooney. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.